I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open to the book of 1 Samuel. This morning we're going to spend some time in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And as you go ahead and grab that book, I want to ask you, even if you haven't found it yet, just to pause while we pray for a moment. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, you are a great king and a mighty God, and we pray a simple prayer now that where we are ignorant, that you would give us knowledge of you and who you are. Where our will is weak, that you would bolster that will in faithfulness to you. Uh, Where our actions are poor, you would confront us in those ways. And that through these things, by the power of your spirit, that you would change us. In Jesus' name. 1 Samuel chapter 11 is found on page 233, the Pew Bible in front of you. And as you're turning, I want to tell you about, uh, in January 2019, this year, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, named Theresa May, faced a no-confidence vote. Now, in the British Parliament, uh, they elect a political party, the, the, the general populace elects a political party into power. They don't elect a president like we do. And within that party, the leader of the party emerges to become the prime minister. But when a prime minister's party finds the leadership of the prime minister to be ineffective, they can call for a vote of no confidence. And if the vote passes, then the prime minister is removed from office and a new minister is elected within the party to lead the government. So after a contentious period of leadership in which uh, was marked by a failed agreement between the United Kingdom and the European Union called Brexit and the terms of Brexit, Theresa May's own party held a vote of no confidence. And this vote goes through all of the parliament. But her own people, her own allies, were saying, among others, that they no longer wanted to follow her lead. The vote of no confidence took place in January, and Theresa May narrowly survived, at least for now. Because since that time, three more calls for a no-confidence vote have been made. No confidence in a leader. You've seen that and probably experienced it in different spheres of your life. And sometimes there's a mechanism to express a lack of confidence in a leader. And often there is no mechanism. And so when there are no formal votes of no confidence, you figure out other ways through your words or through your actions to express that lack of confidence. If you have no confidence in your boss, you typically avoid your boss. Or you try to work around your boss because you lack confidence in them. If you have no confidence in your congressman or congresswoman, you either try to vote against them in the next term or many of us just stop voting altogether because we lack confidence in the political process. And if you have no confidence in your marriage or in your spouse, this could drive you to do a variety of crazy things, like 70-year-old Leonard Olson did this last week in Florida, as he was arrested for driving down the interstate while putting his car on cruise control and hanging out at the top of the sunroof. 
When he was eventually pulled over, the police who had not witnessed what we see on the screen behind us right now, but confronted him about the action, found that he originally denied it, and then after thinking about it for a moment, said, no, I'm guilty, that was me. I'd rather go to jail than to go home to my wife. <laughs> this tells us two things. Number one, Florida is not all that it's cracked up to be. It might just crack you. And number two, talk about a vote of no confidence in your spouse. You think your marriage is hard. Well, poor Len up there. A vote of no confidence. As we pick up the story of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 11, they have a new king named Saul. And that phrase, no confidence, describes what they think of him. And so please turn with me, if you yet to do so, to page 233, 1 Samuel chapter 11. And let me remind you just very briefly, we're talking about Old Testament Israel, who has now desired a king against the wishes of God, but God gave them a king, and God also appointed said king named Saul. And in his, uh, in his election, if you will, or his appointment as king, we see at the end of chapter 10 that Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and had laid it before the Lord. And he sent all the people away, one to his home. And Saul also went to his home, Gibeah. With him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. And so starting in chapter 11, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and he besieged Jabeth Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said, to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. So let me pause for a second because the names are confusing. The men of Jabesh Gilead, Jabesh Gilead is a town in the nation of Israel, were attacked by the Ammonites and their leader Nahash. And so a foreign nation is attacking Israel. A foreign nation is attacking God's people, and God's people desire to make a treaty with him. And this is what it says. But Nahash the Ammonite, verse 2, said to them, On this condition will I make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. The messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they told him the news of the man upon of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord 
fell upon the people. And they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabez Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves to you, up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two men were left together. When the people, then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal there and renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, where they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the story begins with an attack on God's people. Now, during this season in history, the nation of Israel was surrounded by the Ammonites and the Philistines, and it was fairly common for war between the nations to happen. It was just what you did. I hope you have a better relationship with your next-door neighbors than they did. And the story can be a little bit difficult to understand at first because of the names and the towns that are all really foreign to us. But as we said, Jabesh Gilead, a town in Israel, was attacked by the Ammonites. They came under their thumb if you will. God's people were under attack, and as a result, they offered to surrender to the leader of the Ammonites, but their leader wasn't interested in mere surrender. So he offered them a deal. You can surrender, but we will gouge out the right eye of every man of Israel. That's the deal. Now, by gouging out their right eyes was creating an entire generation of warriors who would be ineffective in battle. A whole town of disabled veterans. But it was more than that that he was after. The Ammonite leader wasn't interested in mere surrender. He was interested in humiliation. He wanted to humiliate the people of Israel and the God that they served. And we know this because he says so. We will gouge out the right eye of every man and thus bring disgrace upon Israel. And so the Israelites of that town were in a pickle. Go to war and die or surrender and have our eyes gouged out. Let us, give us a week to decide. And so they send out word into the towns and the villages and are waiting for a response. 
And where is Saul in the midst of all of this? Saul was their king. A king of a nation is the one that's supposed to provide for the protection of his people. A king of a nation is the one that's supposed supposed to negotiate the terms with the foreign enemies. The king is the one that's supposed to raise up the army. But this king was back home in his fields. So the Israelites send out word to see if anybody would come and save them. We saw a few chapters ago in the book of 1 Samuel that they wanted a king. They wanted a king to fight their battles for them. God gave them a king. His name was Saul. But some rejoice immediately. Some question his ability. And as we read just a moment ago at the end of chapter 10, some despise him and say, how could this man possibly save us? Now in the midst of battle, they express that same level of despise. They send out word in all the towns and villages, hoping that some mystery man will rise up and save them. God's already made the mystery man clear. His name is Saul. But they don't go and seek him out. This was their vote of no confidence. No confidence in the king, and no confidence in God. At the beginning of the story, you see the tremendous arrogance of the Ammonites wanting to gouge out their eyes and humiliate them. And that's not uncommon. Arrogance against God's people is not uncommon for us. It's something that we can almost certainly identify with in our day. The cultural narrative of our time is growing ever more hostile to God. Surrender is not enough, but often humiliation is the goal. And the chances are that if you want to follow Jesus seriously in this life, not just follow God generally, but seriously want to follow Jesus, and you withstand the new morality of our culture because you want to be faithful, then there will be some that might try to humiliate you. I think of a variety of examples. There's this company that apparently makes really good chicken sandwiches. They're, they're called Chick-fil-A, and they're being kicked out of college campuses and airports because of lobbying for Christian values. It's kind of a weird combination, college campuses and airports. Um, you think of the way that our current vice president, Mike Pence, is often ridiculed and attempted to be humiliated in the media, and it's almost always on the lines of his fairly conservative moral approach, because he's a professing Christian. Um, you can think of speakers that are brought in by student groups to different universities who are being uh, picketed and ultimately denied access but more than that, it becomes much more personal or interpersonal. It's becoming increasingly unpopular in some spheres to be a Christian. Maybe it's at your job. Or maybe it's in your own family. Or maybe it's in your neighborhood. And Jesus' words ring true here. He says in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. 
But he goes on to say, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, if you follow what, is, what I'm telling you to do, if you believe what I'm telling you to believe, if you act the way that I'm telling you to act, the world is going to hate you, or at least many in it will. And I want you to go ahead and be humiliated anyway. <laughs> because here's the difference. Here's the key. You can face the humiliation of the world if you have the companionship of Jesus. You can face the humiliation of the world if you have the companionship of Jesus. The story continues. We see that the word finally reaches Saul of this impending doom of the people of Jabesh Gilead. He's coming in from the fields. He hears the people weeping. It's interesting to note that the news had reached his hometown of Gibeah. The news was there, and the people didn't actually go out to seek the king and tell him that he had to find out passively as he was sort of coming back into town with his oxen. He hears the weeping and says, what happens? sounds to me like this was their, no, their vote of no confidence in the king that God had installed. And what happens next? Echoes of the judges that God had empowered of old. It says, upon hearing the weeping of the people, verse 6, look with me, it says, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Saul was angry, but his anger was not his own. His, he was strengthened and empowered, but his empowerment was not his own. It was the Spirit of God who had rushed upon him. It was the same Spirit of God that was talked about in these types of terms in Judges chapter 3, with being upon the judge Othniel. Who, the same Spirit of God who clothed Gideon in Judges chapter 6. It was the same Spirit of God that rushed upon Samson when he had his great feats of strength in Judges 14. When the Spirit of God in the Old Testament rushed upon someone, it gave them insight, wisdom, and favor, and strength, and victory. And here we see, really, verse 6 is like the turning point of this whole story. God takes a no-confidence farmer and he turns him into a super-warrior king. And he does that by the power of his spirit. And he only does that for his purposes. And so immediately, like, I mean, the, the story just flips on its side the no confidence is gone, and Saul uh, musters the men. He takes his yoke of his oxen, and he slices the oxen into pieces. He sends out the parts to make a message to all the people of Israel to muster them together, to bring them back into the fold. And it says that the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came as one man. So God empowers the king by his spirit. But he also empowers the people. He gives them this intrinsic sense of urgency. He, he allows them to come together to a functional unity 
all in the purpose of this king. And the story continues as Paul marches, or Saul marches them through the night uh, to early the next morning. They invade the Ammonite camp in three columns of soldiers between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's the first watch. And in their invasion, they defeat them. Only God can do that. Only God can take a farmer and make him a warrior. Only God can take a disconnected, disinterested group of people and bind them together. Only God can take a village that was willing to surrender and have their right eyes gouged out and heroically save them at the And it's interesting that the word salvation is used here a number of times. Did you catch that? Verse 3, the people of Gibeah say to their enemies, if there's no one to save us, then we'll surrender. Verse 9, they send the message back to the people of Jabesh Gilead that tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Verse 13, Saul recounts what happened. He says, today the Lord has worked salvation into Israel. You know, it's often the case in the Old Testament that we see acts of physical salvation that are meant to point us to a greater act of salvation. Military victories that are meant to point us to a greater victory. <laughs> and I think that's the case here. And it's important to see in the scope of 1 Samuel the people are struggling with who is their king, who is their God, how to follow him faithfully. And we see that it's not the king nor the kingship that gives them salvation. It's not the army nor the battle strategy that gives them salvation. It's God. And it's important to realize today that it's not our intelligence or our work ethic that brings us salvation. It's not the fact that we do good things or are in a great country or that we have incredible modern medicine that brings us salvation. It's not even a trust in a good Christian organization or a good local church that brings us salvation. The only object of our, or the only source of our salvation is God. He saves people through the work of his son, Jesus, by the power of his spirit, that same spirit that rushed upon Saul. He saved the people of Jabesh physically through their king. And it points us to how God saves both physically and spiritually through his eternal king, the Lord Jesus. God and God alone is the one who saves he does it in a specific way through Christ. You see, the story comes to its conclusion with a recommitment to God and to his kingdom. Look at verses 12 through 15 with me. I want to read it again for you quickly as they renew the kingdom. It says, the battle is over. The people says to the, say to the prophet Samuel, who is it that said... Shall Saul reign over us? It's almost like they're saying, 
Who is it that called for that vote of no confidence? Even though pretty much all of them had been living it the whole time. They said, bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal there, and they made Saul the king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Come, let us renew the kingdom. And the question is, is whose kingdom are they renewing? Are they renewing Saul's kingdom? Or are they renewing God's kingdom? And I think they're renewing God's kingdom. They're renewing an expressed confidence in God that they had lost. And the way that they're renewing it is by expressing their confidence in the king in which God has installed. The king that they had previously voted no confidence. The expression of their confidence now points to a confidence in God. They threaten to kill the naysayers. They sacrifice peace offerings. They rejoice that the kingship has come afresh. And so just like the Israelites renew their allegiance to God, so too I think we regularly renew our allegiance to God and to his kingdom. This is what Jesus means when he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. It's a renewal of our allegiance when we do that. This is what it means when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it means when we take the Lord's Supper together and we remember Christ's death until he comes again. We renew our allegiance to God through faith in Jesus. And we say every time we do, God, I need you. God, I'm dependent upon you. God, I need the forgiveness that only you can grant me. God, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your rule is higher than my rule. And God gave them a chance to renew the kingdom. He had just given them a king, and they already screwed it up. And he gave them a chance to renew the kingdom. And that word renew is interesting. It has an interesting meaning, doesn't it? It's, it has a sense, an implied sense, that the current situation is degrading in some ways. And to renew something means to reestablish it, typically on an improved basis, a surer footing. To renew something means to make it new again. <laughs> you renew a book from the library when your status of time is degrading. <laughs> you renew your marriage vows, perhaps, if you've gone through a rocky season of your marriage. Or maybe, maybe your marriage is generally pretty good, but you still want a fresh expression of your love and commitment to each other, so you renew it. We renew our faith. 
in a variety of ways. Like I said, when we take the Lord's Supper together, it's one of those ways regularly and consistently as a church. And God gives them a chance to renew, and they take it. How gracious is God in that way. He's so patient with us. And God gives you a chance to renew. And the call for you is to take it. Friends, some of you are here today and you've been following the Lord for a very long time. And you're doing so to the best of your ability and trying to be faithful. And as a result, you daily renew your allegiance to God every time you wake up in the morning and you pray. It's an allegiance to Him as you express dependence upon Him. It's a renewing of your faith. Every time you lean on Jesus to forgive you of your sins again, and again and again as you confess them. In some sense, this is a renewal of faith as you trust in the gospel anew. Every time your will comes to an intersection, a crossing point, with God's expressed desire and will. And I love the way that Pastor Chris expresses this. Is the Christian is the one who bends their will, they yield their will to God, to follow Him. And when that happens, there is an expression of a renewed faith. The display is real. It can be no other. Some of us here today used to follow the Lord more intentionally than we do now. Maybe we have history in the church or in our family. But over the past months, or maybe even the past years, we haven't taken a relationship with God as seriously as we used to. And God is giving you the opportunity to renew your faith. Perhaps you never say it this way exactly, but maybe you have even been living in such a way that expresses a vote of no confidence in God. But I think one of the main points of this passage that by the power of God's Spirit, when our faith is slipping, it's time to renew our trust in God. When your faith is slipping, it's time to renew your trust, and the Spirit gives the power to do that. Maybe you've chased after some of your own desires, but you are starting to realize that they aren't actually giving you the satisfaction you thought that they would. When your faith is slipping, it's time to renew your trust. Maybe you've been hurt or ashamed or found it difficult to see how you could possibly find the pathway back to God. And I'll tell you this, it starts with recognizing that your faith is slipping and renewing your trust. Maybe life has just been hard. And there's a lot of people in this room today, and a lot of us have really hard situations in life. And you've lacked confidence in God's ability to provide, or to care, or to give you hope, or an emotional stability, or even to save. But when your faith is slipping, it's time to renew your trust. Fyodor Dostoevsky is one of the greatest novelists of all time. He describes a situation... Uh, when he was 27 years old as a turning point in his life. 
Dostoevsky came from the privileged class of 19th century Russia, and he made it his mission to free or liberate the oppressed working class or the serfs. And so he joined a revolutionary liberation group, and as a result, he was arrested in April of 1849, placed in a maximum security prison with poor conditions, and for eight months, he and his friends were questioned. In October, the prisoners were removed from their cells and led to carriages that were waiting for them. They were not sure of their fate, but they thought that their sentence would be light. And when they reached their destination, they were led out onto the gallows. The men were sentenced to be shot. They were given a cross to kiss and a priest to confess to and dressed in peasant shirts and hoods for their execution. The first three men were in line. They were tied to posts where they were to be shot. The soldiers took aim and held their positions. And then from nowhere, a drum roll was heard. And a messenger from the czar rode in on a horse in great and dramatic fashion with a pardon for Dostoevsky and for his fellow prisoners. They were taken back to prison, not executed, with the intention that they would eventually be sent to a prison in Siberia. And later, when reflecting upon this in a letter to his brother, Mikhail, Dostoevsky describes his new outlook on life from the moment of his near execution, from his Jabeth Gilead rescue, to being saved. He describes... When I look back on my past and I think how much time I wasted on nothing. How much time has been lost in futilities, errors, laziness, incapacity to live. And how little I appreciated it. How many times I sinned against my heart and my soul. And my heart bleeds. Life is a gift. In a later novel called The Idiot, Dostoevsky describes an execution scene very similar to the one he experienced. In the thoughts of a 27-year-old victim as he awaited death, certainly the reflections of his own near execution. He says, what if I didn't have to die? I would turn every minute into an age. Nothing would be wasted. Every minute would be accounted for. Some of us in the midst of difficulty or even great relief because of God's kindness would resonate with that expression of time and efforts that are so futile of our past days. That's often the case when one faces tragedy or death or something severe. The urgency of what is important comes into light. But it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to wait for a moment of severe tragedy or near death to recalibrate your life around what's most important. God gives you that opportunity to renew every single day. And so when your faith is slipping, it's time to renew your trust in God. Please pray.
Lord God, you are infinitely gracious to us and exceptionally kind. And I pray today for those who have been following you and are renewing their allegiance to you every single day, that you bolster their confidence all the more in your goodness and your promises and your kindness. And I pray for those of us who are here today who have been wavering and maybe through the course of time have felt and grown cold or distant to you. God, that you give us the call and the opportunity to renew our allegiance to you by the power of your spirit. And that when that happens, you create in us a new sense of urgency, a new sense of importance, a new sense of time. And we ask, God, that you would do that work even right now in our hearts and our minds.